Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of warm and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by independent author Michael Golden, Republican David Cohen, Republican Jim Martyr, and Democrat Socialist Anthony Joel Posada. Our program tonight coming to you tomorrow base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago in the Paul and Angel Harvey Radio Studio. It's nice to have you with us. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at B- or Beyond the Beltway 2019 uh, at, uh, B- at uh, Gmail. And also, if you would like to join us, uh, send me a tweet. It's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And again, if you want to join us on the World Wide Web, where it's beyondthebeltway.com, where you can see not only this show, but also previous shows and any show that you, in the past that you want to look up. We keep it there for a long, long time. And, of course, we are also live on Facebook, um, the Beyond the Beltway Facebook page, and also we are live on YouTube. And I know more and more people getting the, the emails uh, uh, that we get after the program. More and more people are watching uh, this program on YouTube, and it's nice to have you with us, as well as on America's Great Talk radio stations. we got two hours. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to be talking about uh, the president's plan for re-entry for prisoners. That'll be in the last half hour of the broadcast this evening, but we have lots uh, of ground to cover uh, before then. And uh, I would say that in looking at this list, we, we have perhaps one of the most diverse a guest lists we've had in, in quite some time, so we're going to be across the spectrum in response to this. And I'd like to begin with you know where the where the controversy has been involving the president of the United States. Obviously, he's taken some real shots at uh, four members, very progressive members of Congress that he has referred to as the squad. And uh, I don't, no one is they're not offended by being referred to as the squad. But there's been a battle going on between the president. Uh, not only through his tweets, but also in his rally last week uh, in the Carolinas when uh, when he uh, went after them and basically said, if you don't agree, if you don't like this country, you can go leave and get out, is basically what he had to say. And obviously that has set up uh, a, a lot of controversy. Many Democrats were upset with that comment. Many in the media were upset with the comment. They said it was uh, you know, un-American to suggest that, especially when he referenced that some of these people should go back to where they came from when three of the four actually... Uh, we're born in the United States and are American citizens. Jim Martyr, we're going to start with you. You are our, you're the closest thing to a card-carrying conservative uh, with us this evening. That's right. <laughs> so I want to go back and, and, or go to you and, and get your reaction. When you, when you first heard the comments, uh, did you agree with them? Do you understand the controversy uh, that some people have with the president's rhetoric? Yeah, great question, because when I first heard the comments from the media, not what was actually tweeted, my initial reaction was, wait a minute, you know, what's, what's going on there? And I've had some conversations with some of my great conservative f- friends of different ancestry, and they're like, yeah, this, you know, we didn't really like hearing that either. But then we peeled it back and we looked at it, it was a three-part tweet. And he, ta- well, he was really talking about, you know, what was going on with their comments towards America and how America is today, and they're kind of almost vitriol against America and so one of the parts of it was look at go go where these countries were 
And I don't know that he really identified any of them, so it wasn't called out. He did, in the first part of the three-part tweet, he talked about the congresswomen. So we knew that it was probably a couple of folks. We didn't know who the rest of them were. But basically, if you look at the last part, it said, when you learn something, come back and teach us and tell us how to do that. So, you know, when you look at it as a three-part tweet, it was a little different when we digested it. I'm an analyst, so I look at it that way a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I kind of agree, if you're telling someone just to go back and get out of here, you know, we don't like that. We don't need to do that. But that's really not what the intent was. Anthony so I think Quisa it's a style versus substance Anthony Quisada sure. joins us. You are a Democrat socialist. Democratic we, socialist. Democratic socialist. We put you right next to, uh, to Jim here tonight, so you're within uh, uh, shouting distance of yes. one another. What was your reaction when you heard the president say what he said? Well, to be honest, it's, it's very, very true. It's very hateful. It's very racist. Uh, it's um, just without any sort of respect to these uh, individuals, to the congresswoman. Uh, I mean, if you look at Trump's base, uh, you know, shortly after he made those comments at that rally, you had uh, uh, Donald Trump supporters saying to send Ilhan Omar back. Um, this is the base that he's rallying. This is the support that he's getting. He knows exactly what he's doing, but at the end of the day, it's a distraction. It's a, it's a distraction from the failure of his administration. It's also a, a reaction to the great power that these four congresswomen have in mobilizing millions of Americans across the country, which Donald Trump is failing to do. David Cohen joins us. David, you're the closest thing to a moderate Republican uh, that we've had on in several weeks. So what, what's your response to the president's comments? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm proud to play that role. I'm glad that I'm a, sort of an ideological newcomer here for that. Uh, you know, as more traditional, or I would say moderate Republican, I, I was dismayed by the, Republic, by the president's remarks. Um, they're, they're not consistent with what I've always thought were the sort of core conservative or Republican values, uh, the, the sort of values that were articulated by Ronald Reagan as he was leaving the Oval Office talking about all the great strengths that immigrants bring to this nation. Virtually everyone that I know and everyone you'll run into, unless they have direct lineage as Native Americans of this nation, uh, emigrated at some time. And so uh, he's not doing the, the uh, Republican Party any favors, in my view, with that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I don't think it's consistent with the kinds of values that the Republican Party, frankly, has stood for, uh, certainly since the time of Lincoln. And uh, also joining us this evening is Michael Golden. He's an independent, uh, but he's managed Democratic campaigns in the past. Also have a book called Unlock Congress. Okay, you've got four members of Congress. They're speaking their, their, their truth to power, and the president doesn't like it. Is this was this a was this a good political move? For well, that's that's what I want to address because, as you know, I, I find him to be a, a disgusting man. Uh, Seventy percent of Americans said that they were found this offensive. I disagree with Jim. I think there's no question, not, neither in his tweets nor in the words that he said to the press and to, then to to that rally. There's no question. So it's sort of like uh, you know. The, the emotion of it doesn't interest me as much. Everybody knows what he is. But mm -hmm. I, I think the interesting thing is that this, I think next year is going to be the biggest Rorschach test of my life in an election. I'm 52 years old. So I wasn't, I was not, you know, there for the civil rights movement. And I almost feel like what we saw the other night and we saw in Charlottesville is, uh, as, as close as I've seen to where do you stand for the rest of your life and for history, and especially for elected officials. I will say, you asked me about the strategy, mm -hmm. since 2016, the election in Virginia, they won, the Democrats won 15 seats and, and uh, uh, got it to even in the House of Delegates, which is mm -hmm. astonishing. Right. And more astonishing is that a Democrat was elected U.S. Senator in Alabama and Arizona. That hasn't happened in 24 years. 
Um, and in the midterms, as you know, in Unlock Congress, I talk about how uh, not just gerrymandering, but the regional splits in our country uh, make a rigged map for the Republicans. And they've been very, very good at what they've done in securing that. The Democrats won 40 seats. Uh, even I, who was optimistic, didn't think they'd win more than 34 or 35 at the top. That is a historic win, the most since Watergate. And I don't see what Trump, who's he trying to get? There's not, I don't think there's many swing voters. Jim, what's your, what's your reaction to that? So, so look, in my day job, I work with people from around the world every day, all the time, mm -hmm. been doing it for 34 years. And what I hear there, and also what I hear on the street in the political world is, look, people are tired of this whole racist discussion, saying everything that somebody says is racist. And I get, like I said, my friends that were talking to me about this, I get that some people like, if you told them to go back home, that's that would be clearly racist. But I don't think that was really the intent here. If you look at it, it was a three-part tweet, you analyze it, and you take it apart where it came from, and you say, that's not we what gotta, he was saying. He was really gotta, calling him out for anti-American stuff. Yep. Okay, that's fine. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, the president, in his response uh, to this, he has talked about that, you know, the, the Democrats, members of Congress, who, who were very quickly to, to pass a resolution, you know, sort of decrying his words, uh, that they, they did not go far enough when they recently tried to, you know, say to some of the members of the squad, hey, cool it with your comments about Israel. Uh, and a lot of people perceived their comments about Israel as being anti-Semitic. When you look at what the squad collectively has said, Michael, you're Jewish, what, what do you think? I mean, could the Democrats and should the Democrats have been stronger in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in tapping them down? Well, first things first, let's not, let's not make this uh, an equivalence because members of Congress represent 700,000 people. The president is the only person we all vote on. So him telling people to go back to their countries uh, <laughs> you know, who've, who've come here and made a better life and now have been elected to public service is not the same. However, I, did, I totally disapprove. Let me, let I totally do, disapprove I ask, of ask. Omar's remarks, okay. and I do think that the House could have uh, done a resolution specifically about anti-Semitism. I, act, I actually do think they, they could do that. But I don't want to see any equivalency between what Trump's done in terms of being racist from, for three years now, on the record. Anthony, I, we, what's, yeah, your, what's yeah. your take on the same I question? Mean, I mean, it's Democrats and Republicans hiding behind 
behind the anti-Semitic argument. Right, right. Um, all the time, um, when they're not doing anything to actually help people in the region. Um, right now, you know, the, the kind of criticisms that Ilhan Omar and a lot of the Democratic Socialists and a lot of the, the you know, rising progressive left are making are criticism, uh, criticisms against the administration of Israel, right? They're making criticisms against the occupation of Palestine. And that is not e equivalent to, a to anti-Semitism. Uh, and it's a, it's a well, false narrative. That, that's a false narrative that has been propagated over and over again to hide the crimes that you know our congressmen are supporting uh, when it comes to the occupation of Israel. Yeah, we David, disagree, about, we disagree get, about that for the record. I want to get Dave, I want to get your response, but I want David's response as well. Well, I think that it, it, when it comes to you know political speech by elected officials, perception is reality. And first of all, any elected official of either party, any party, needs to be held accountable for remarks that are intemperate or offensive, uh, or that that offend communities of, of interest. But um, I, I think that I, I have a little bit of a of a, a different take on this, and that is that. Beyond the debate about whether or not uh, Rep. Omar's remarks were anti-Semitic and if they were, to what degree, and, and how outraged should the Congress and people of America be about it, um, we're talking about four freshman uh, members here. And I, as, as a Capitol Hill staffer, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, when you're a freshman, I don't care what your party affiliation is, you get in there, you learn the ropes, you learn the job, you, you to some extent, pay your dues. and. Um, I think for, for them to step out and to, frankly, engage in this kind of confrontation with the speaker is something that would have been completely outrageous. And maybe that's the point. We don't have, but, to, we mm -hmm. don't have time for this respectability politics, yeah. though. We don't well, have time. If we, lose, we, if know, we, lose, we know what we need to be yeah. fighting for in yeah. Congress. But and I, we don't need to come in and respect the establishment after they've silenced millions of people for so long well, when I, they've committed war crimes. There is, a role, there is a role for well. process. There is a role for process no, and civility. That, and that is the reason right. why we, the world we, is we marching that. into fascism. That is the reason why the world is dying from climate change, because we've been waiting for too long, and we've been bending our knee to the political establishment like Jim, Nancy Pelosi. Jim yes. So, so, so look, a lot to digest here, right? But so one of the one of the points again, back to what was going on with it, said go back and learn, fix it, and then come back and tell us how you did it, right? So, so think about this. We have four freshman congressmen. Yeah, they rep represent actually about nine hundred thousand folks. But if you look at that and you say, but they've been given a mega microphone by the mass media, so. There's something going on here. The media is using them, literally using them, and they're happy to do it and happy to be that thing where they're going out there they're, and they're, the things they're, they're saying. Them. Um, we have concentration camps at our border with Which we our DHS. You got to be kidding me, folks. This is stuff. You know, if I've been to Germany, have you been to the uh, concentration camps? You need to go and see these yeah, things. Can you define concentration camps? So there's an old expression, yeah. and it, it it's counts now, I think, more than, than any time in terms of uh, uh, looking at politics, right? Where you stand depends on where you sit, okay? So when Omar says uh, all about the Benjamins, that is an anti-Semitic trope about money, and I could give you five examples, if we had some time, of Donald Trump doing that and not getting any type of formal sanctions. So let's let's just start there with the double standard. I don't think that Omar is even ready for prime time, and that's why Trump's propping is her up. Maybe question? AOC could go toe to toe, maybe in a, in a, with some more seasoning. But this Omar is not ready for this. Is there is there a, is there no. a legitimate question to be debated whether or not uh, the the Israeli lobby has provided financial cover and support for members of Congress? Who believe in a strong state of Israel, and if if and if they're accepting money from that lobby, is it wrong to say how much of that money is being persuasive to how they vote? Is that is it wrong to ask that question? 
Well, I mean, if you, you I'm sure can you I ask made, you a question? I'm sure you've made the comment about the power of the oil industry. I right. Mean, so other I was going to say, yeah, if, the, if, if, yeah, but if if you're going to ask that question, how is that different from? all of the money flooding through the system. I don't which pick is, on one thing wrong, when right? I wrote my book. I did a comprehensive review right. of all the issues, uh, uh, domestic issues that are hurting right. this country and, 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 the, and the interest behind them. See, if you're singling out, that's almost, that's almost worse. Just, here's, here's a, here's a I'm gonna ask you this one. Does a position of anti-Israel, which, which many believe is also anti-Semitic, although I think there's a case that could be made, there's a slight difference between the two, can you make a case that someone with that, let's say an extreme position, let's say the person is anti-Semitic, do the voices of anti-Semitism deserve to have a voice in Congress as part of a discussion, Dave? I don't mean four, I'm just saying is if you took the collective population of those four congressional districts, do you think that a majority of people in those districts would believe in a position that you might describe as anti-Semitic? I have I have no idea what the no I know what they would I I would just say and also as you know as as someone of Jewish descent, uh, anti-Semitism like all kinds of bigotry that infect our world uh, is a, is a kind of disease in my view, yes. um, and it's something that we haven't well addressed as a nation or globally for that matter. But it it seems to me that if you have any elected official who engages in and I do think there is, by the way, a meaningful distinction between someone who wants to criticize U.S. foreign policy, our relationship with Israel, the nature of our uh, diplomatic relations, and what we do or do not do in support of Israel. Those are legitimate policy debates. Anti-Semitic language, right. anti-Semitic tropes have no place in our political or policy dialogue. Exactly. None. Well they have no place well in the world. Said. Exactly. None. Okay. So if, if you believe that way and you have a member of Congress who speaks that way, at least it's interpreted by others that she's anti-Semitic. No, see, now the people who are yes, interpreting it are did. the people who are racist against her, against her background, her ethnic background, her religious background. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's How many members of the exact party voted against, against her? They're all, they're all what about her? what yeah. she said? They're all bullying her. But what about her words? Right. They have to look at her words. All of us are on t cameras and microphones. Yeah. If we get criticized in two right. hours, right. you they're can never take it back. I'll get criticized for something I said. One of the first Muslim congresswomen That is not the criticism. It's what she said. That is incorrect, actually. incorrect. There's been a challenge to white supremacy, to Zionism, to the control of Israel over Palestinian people, and, and again, not Jewish people. We're talking about people in power. The Jewish people are not in power. The people who are in power are the ones who are engaging in military conflict, her, who are oppressing people own in Palestine, caucus, who are oppressing her own the region. That is exactly what she's going to do. Jim, go to you. Yeah, her own caucus put up a resolution <laughs> to basically <laughs> condemn what she right. said, right? And they voted on it, right? Yes. Which the Democratic the Democrats. Caucus. Okay, right? yeah, the party. This is, right. We, so. we are in this party. We are in this political fight right now to go against the party. No, she that didn't run as a Democratic Socialist. She ran as a Democrat. Right, but she is a Democratic Socialist. There is no Democratic Socialist Party. We are Democratic Socialists. So, so run on that ticket. She is, it's not a ticket. We are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. It is a political organization. We are not a party. Or you're going to have to be a Democrat. These are our values, our political values and political 
principles that we are taking in and that we are challenging, just like racist, uh, you know, uh, 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 Donald Trump supporters is and people a, who are running is on there, MAGA is campaigns. There a that is the same. Anthony, you've that, had a lot of wait, that is the same, yeah. time okay, the same way people are going in the Republican no, Party. Okay, Anthony, Anthony, is there a Democratic Socialist Caucus in in the House? I believe no, there's none right now. Why not? There's caucuses for everything. There's caucuses for Literally, there's Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders. There's four people. I don't believe that's enough to make a caucus. Why not? Why I mean, not? You need five. Since you have a majority. You, you need well, more than that. But either way, is it enough? I have not no, heard here, that rule. Is it, a, is, it an, is it enough to ask questions and be the recipient of a national news media that's always interested in looking for squeaky wheels? So that's whether, a good question. Just a minute. Whether oh, sorry. there's squeaky wheels in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. or squeaky wheels in the Republican Party. You say something a little outrageous, you're going to get coverage, can I, right, period. Can I, can I please answer this sure. question? Because I, I, I never get asked this question, and I spent <laughs> uh, 10 years in, in media and reporting, and I left this business because of that. Because especially in television, and this goes for local TV, where you're the first five stories are shootings and stabbings, uh, or political media, where they sandwich people yelling at each other between sure. ads, and without eyeballs <laughs> and without clicks, you get no ad rates. That's why commercial right. journalism is actually... Uh, uh, um, um, like a dichotomy, you you almost can't have it. Uh, yes, the media goes way too nuts and way overblows most of this stuff. Uh, it, it, it's very, I sympathize with them a bit because in the age of Trump and the racism and hatred that he's fueled for three years, it's an incredibly difficult job to make mm -hmm. any sense of all this stuff on national television. They, they used to have one good story every three weeks on the Hill. Now every day they're breaking, literal breaking news, yeah. the, the, not the Is BS, there? every, Two hours. All right. When we come back, I'm going to ask Sorry. the question, and I want to I want to see whether there may be a, agreement on this. Is the media and the way the media operates, as you've just defined, Michael, is it making country is it making America a better country or a lesser country? Mm. Back shortly from Chicago. I won't answer that one because my film. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, Go to FCC.gov slash emergency. Been good enough for me, believe me. Back in Chicago. Nice to have you with us. We've got quite a uh, conversation going here. Or a, as you said, a shouty. You said we're doing exactly what you we described? Are. We are. Well, yeah, we have two hours. We're not talking about, like, how, you know, whether Medicare for All is a good thing or not, or whether, you know, we're talking about uh, Trump and all, the, and all the yelling. We're, we're talking, no, we're talking about how you win an election, and winning election is finding 
the right issue that mobilizes your base. We haven't talked about that up. yet, though. We've talked about well, those four and what they've said do, and whether do, it's right or wrong. Do you, and do you, you think know. do you think that what the president is doing is not turning out his base? Do you think his base? Yeah, but do you that's think his a base is, Do you think it? Do you think his base is upset with what he said last week? No, that 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 whatever 30, 32 percent. But he's been doing that for three years. You know, each vote just just to, to Trump folks, you only get one vote. So I understand, and most politicians run the last race that they won. You you can only squeeze so many people out of your base. I don't I don't really understand it. Democrats won also the governorships of Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. You're because of suburban women, and he's just. I, I welcome him to keep saying this stuff almost on a, so on a that, political that, that, basis. See, that's that's what concerns me about that's Democrats. Horrible. They they, they yeah, think well, that he's doing. That's where a, we're at. They Sorry. think he's doing a horrible job, and yet. You're not confident that the American people are going to reject him. Uh, I am. You're, I'm confident. Yeah, I'm confident. You, you By the way, confident. I didn't mean oh, I right, welcome right, more. I'm saying right. it would be good for Democrats trying to win the presidency if he kept doing that. Sadly, I don't know which would be worse. But I don't know. No, I think that uh, I, I. I mean, look, I, I was wrong like 99.999% of the country, including Donald Trump, yeah. when I said that he was going to lose. But if I, you put a gun to my head and said you better guess right, I'd say absolutely yeah, the Democrats will win. But you remember. Who said that he was going to win? Who? I don't know. Who said that Donald Trump was going to win? Besides him, I don't know. Me. But nine months. Well, you're part of that point. Nine months. Nine months. One percent. That's quite something. We're now going to let everybody introduce themselves, and we will begin with James Martyr. Jen? All right. Hi. I am James Martyr. I am a candidate for the 14th Congressional District in Congress in Illinois. Um, I live in the village of Oswego. I, my wife and I have been married for 34 years. We have four children, and we have a brand new granddaughter that's blessed our, our world. So we're very happy to have welcomed her in here. And one of the things that you've said is that if you uh, if you are successful in your primary, and again, we had one of your opponents on a couple of weeks ago, so part of equal time, that's why you're with us this evening. But again, if you are successful in ousting uh, Congresswoman uh, Underwood, uh, yes. who was a surprise Democratic winner last time. Yes, she was. You will proudly become a member of the Republican Freedom Caucus. Yes, uh, you know, I, I, I look to some great members like Jim Jordan. He's a leader. He's a he's a just a great guy. The whole Freedom Caucus. What we're really about is limited government. Put Americans first and bring Washington D.C. down to size. It's it's gone way beyond its intended um, intended scope from the Constitution, and we need to look back to that. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to do things today, folks. We have states. That's what states are for. So you know, I'm looking local government, better government, limited government. Okay. Also with us is Anthony Joel Quesada. That's Anthony, right. welcome back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so my name is Anthony Joel Quesada. I'm a first-generation uh, Latinx, queer Latinx, uh, that was born and raised in Logan Square, it's where I still live today. I'm a community leader, community organizer. I've been organizing for the past three years uh, locally on uh, campaigns, on issue-based campaigns for the fight for rent control, uh, for housing justice, for immigration justice, uh, against uh, the political and economic establishment that has been controlling our lives here in Chicago for too long. I've worked on multiple campaigns. I actually work for a uh, city council member, Alderman Carlos Rosa of the 35th Ward. I'm also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is a 60,000 member uh, organization that has grown rapidly over the past couple of years. And we have also just elected five other Democratic Socialists to the Chicago City Council. That's something we discussed last week on this program. We mentioned the, the, the number of Democrat Socialists who uh, were elected in the city of Chicago. That's right. Uh, for those that uh, are longtime viewers and listeners to the show, yeah. 
They remember, it's hard to believe, a much younger Anthony Joel Quesada that was yeah. on this program about three and a half, four years ago. That's right. And you were a big Bernie Sanders supporter. Yes. Now, my question to you is, you were old enough to vote. You were also on after Bernie Sanders was unsuccessful. And you were not happy with the way that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic establishment treated him. That's right. And I'm going to ask you a question that I rarely ask a guest. Sure. Did you vote for Hillary Rodham Clinton? I did. Okay, yes, good. Because I did not want Donald Trump to win. Way to go. Okay, okay good. Because, because a lot of your <laughs> colleagues did not. Yes, uh, there, there was not a lot of colleagues who did not. There were a lot of people who were not inspired by this election. That's the reason why Donald Trump won, because they <clears> saw... They saw the political establishment candidate that was backed by Wall Street running again, same old, same old. And what millions of Americans, what millions of working people want right now is change. Political change, economic change. They want economic freedom. Is right? Bernie, right now, is Bernie your guy for this for yes, 2020? Yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. you've not he's, your been back. he's been working tirelessly to build a campaign for working Americans. David Cohn. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, hi, I'm Dave Cohn. Um, I'm a Chicago kid um, and I uh, grew up in the northern suburbs. I originally started out in uh, broadcasting. I come from a family of uh, people who work in broadcasting. My mom was on radio in Chicago when I was a uh, young kid. And um, then that's where I met the uh, member of Congress who I would go to work for for the next many years, John Porter. Uh, and like the congressman I worked for, I'm a part of that, uh, as Bruce alluded to earlier, the uh, mostly extinct species of moderate Republican. Um, and after John retired uh, from Congress in 2000, I worked for Lieutenant Governor Corinne Wood as her director of communications, uh, spent time doing communications consulting here in town at a law firm, and for the last 15 years, I've been uh, executive director of public affairs at the Union League Club of Chicago, where I do our public policy Which work. Which is one of the oldest clubs in the United States. One of, one of the oldest uh, private clubs in the United States, founded in 1879, and in fact, the only private club that has a, an institutional commitment to public policy, advocacy, and community service. So I'm very, very proud to work at the club. And a, and a moderate <clears throat> Republican. Yes, yes, okay. I am indeed. Need more moderates, All need right. more independents. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Michael Gold. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Um, I'm the president of Golden Mean Strategies and author of the book Unlock Congress, which is a nonpartisan look at the wrong-headed rules that screw up the U.S. Congress, uh, no matter which party you're in, and, and solutions for how to reform reform those rules and make the system uh, work better. Uh, and I'm also a co-founder of One Million Degrees, which is a community college scholarship uh, program, which is graduating students at three times the uh, average in Chicago. Very good. Let's go to Eric listening to us in California. He's listening to us on 1380. Eric, go where in California are you calling from? Linda. Your Belinda. Okay, go ahead. Real Linda. Real Linda. Real Linda. Where is Real Linda? Just about 13 miles north of Sacramento. Small okay. town. What can we do for you tonight? I just wanted to point out, because I'm so sick and tired of hearing this, send them back home. He didn't say that. What he said is go back to their countries of origin and fix their corrupt cultures and political systems then return to the U.S. and show how they did it. That's, ex that's okay. exactly it. And, and there's actually kind of a, a, a thing in there that says, look, show us how you did it. That's kind of saying, hey, we, we want to see what your ideas are. Let's see it. Let's no, bring them back. Should, right? should be able so to that, stay that's, here. Part, that's what that tweet was about. I mean, yeah. Eric, you had to look at the context. It's three-part, folks. Eric, the media didn't report any of it. They did not report any of it. And that's why I said... What does it... Well, I'm yeah. going to ask you, and I'm going to ask Eric. We'll let Eric respond first. Eric, what does it say 
When the president says that, and yet the president doesn't seem to know that three of the four people are from the United States. What, what does that basic piece of information tell you? Well, I would have to be honest and say he may not have known that they were all uh, uh, born, or not all, but many, three of them born in the U.S. and U.S. citizens from birth, I think. He, he also didn't call anyone out by name, so how do we know it was actually those no, four? He said congresswoman, right? So. He, he said their names yeah, in front of yeah. 10, No, but that was, that, that was after the Saturday tweets, right? That, that's Jim, following Jim, it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to make that yeah. comment and, and, and you're, a, you're a media expert, you have to assume that the, the media is going to react in such a way. I mean, clearly, I don't think there's anybody that would question I who he was talking about. And I'm just saying is, I, when, well, you, when you say that, I mean, he basically said, go back to your countries and clean it up. Well, these people say, you know, I, I, did, I am in my country. I think I'm was in the United about, States, and I'm trying to clean it up by running for Congress exactly and getting right. elected and going out and saying what's wrong with the country. It was, right. he, it was clear to me he was talked about what's wrong a hundred times. It was clear to me he was talking about at least two of the four. It wasn't clear to me he was talking about the other two. Right? It was that, you're, aren't you whittling around the edges there? No, no I'm just saying much? it wasn't clear because it, he never named anybody. It was also very clear from his base that they wanted Ilhan Omar out. Right, it was very clear from that Whoa. rally. Well, she, she should have been censured by Congress, and, right? But well, doesn't mean that you sent back to us. No, but he said go back and so, show no, us how to no, fix no. it, you, and then come back. You don't really hold on. But read the tweet. I'm just going by what You don't really buy that he was as a study saying you're going to go back to your countries and bring back your solutions, even though they're not from those countries. You you really can you can with a straight face say that he meant that. Well, it was look, it was a political talk, right? So you know we. It happens on both both sides, but he didn't. It wasn't a racist statement. It was a okay. If you don't like America, remember it's the context was they were they were saying we have concentration camps on the border, which we don't, by the way, do. Okay. And um, that those were the kind of comments that were coming out of these well, congresswomen, and that's what they were acting. And by the way, Americans are acting those comments as well. Can I say something, Bruce? I, I want to just follow up on your point. Yes. You, you, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. Back to oh, okay. you. Uh, I heard somebody mention something about uh, climate change. I need everyone to know there's 30,000 scientists, real scientists, to sign a petition, 18,000 PhD holders that said there's no evidence for human caused global warming. And if anything, the CO2 is doing us a favor because it's helping plants grow oh, God. <laughs> more okay. adverse conditions. Well, I hope you enjoy your okay. very, very warm summer because well, the planet is the, has never been this hope hot. Hope you don't have grandkids. Uh, again. It's a, it's a, that, that's a different subject. Thanks to you for your call. It's always good to hear from uh, California, especially uh, Northern California. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. We've got callers on the line. We've lit up the boards, and we'll hear from them when we return from Chicago. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness. Helping themselves. And helping each other. 
with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. I asked the question a couple of segments ago, and now I want to get our guest's uh, response. And I asked the question uh, because uh, Michael had gone through an extensive description of how he sees media today and how it's changed uh, since he was a young reporter back in Sacramento uh, and, and Fresno many years ago. And the question that I asked was, is, is America a better place today because of the media we have? Are they helping the circumstance, the situation in the United States, insofar as let's talk about just the split, the, 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 the growing, uh, growing divisions in the country. Are they, uh, are they responsible for it or are they just reporting on it? And I want to start with you, Jim. Well, I think they're largely responsible for it. Look, they're also making themselves irrelevant because folks that I work with every day people don't want to hear this stuff they honestly people are tuning out they don't want to hear hear these kind of shows where they're going out and and doing this everything's about racism everything's about left right people don't like that and even on the streets right they they you know most folks they want to they want to go to work they want to do their job and they want to enjoy their time with their family their friends on the weekend and, and to me that's what it's really about uh anthony what, what's the question I'm the, sorry? Que the question is 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 the media the way the uh, media yeah. conducts itself now is it making the country better or worse? You know, the corporate media is really focused on quotas. It is focused on making money. And I think that's the that's the problem at hand because they look at people like Trump and they're like, people are gonna watch him, they're gonna listen to him, and we're gonna get viewership, and we're gonna get more money, we're gonna get more sponsorships. And so their uh, infatuation with, with profit is actually destabilizing our democracy, it is destabilizing uh, quality journalism, but it is, uh, journalism itself is not the enemy of the people here. And again, it is a system, it is an economic system that is based off profit so and not off ran, truth and okay, justice. Anthony, yeah. if, if you ran a network, if, if you were the head of any one of the major networks, sure. and you had a candidate that was saying things that would get you know 30 40,000 people into a crowd night after night or repeatedly once or twice a month would you ignore that person I doesn't would. that indicate that that person is saying something that is a magnet for their response there's yeah. a middle lane on that yeah I, I think I think there needs to be equal I mean look look back in 2016 the corporate media was not giving Bernie Sanders any attention and I think they weren't giving him any attention uh, not just because uh, I am seeing some looks here. You want to get some direct responses? Oh, I, well, I'm, I'm startled to well, say that I heard Bernie about Sanders did not. Oh, my God. He was not getting okay. as much attention as, as Hillary Clinton, as other people, as Donald Trump. They were giving him less airtime. That's actual proof. You can look back at the data. Bernie Sanders got far less airtime than any other people. And I think it's because he was actually challenging the political and economic establishment that the corporate media is, is part of and that he was actually speaking truth to Americans. They were looking for you know, reactions from people well, like Trump. Okay. I, I, I think that, 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 that the Democrat Party on the Democratic yeah. side, they oh, he got it, plenty it of coverage. A, not versus yeah. Trump. That's I different. Go, I want to go back. I want to go back to our Well, that's politics. That's politics. Yeah. You have to get in the game. I worked right. for Gary Chico for seven months, sure. and they ignored us until we got up in the polls. It took every last sweat drop of sweat to get up to 12% and be relevant. And to the question, corporate media is destabilizing our democracy. It is a real, real threat. Do you think it's making country the country better or worse, Michael? I, I don't. I think that's a, a false choice. I think that there's a middle lane here. That there, 
for instance, if you watch CNN, which purport still to be nonpartisan, to be the network in the middle. That's absolute BS. Could, Go ahead. Purports, I said. I didn't say they purports. are. I'm, I said they purports. I'm, I'm offering well, your, right, I'm you're offering helping my me. assessment yes. to your purports. Right, no, you're adding, you're adding to my point. So if you watch uh, the primetime lineup of Anderson Cooper and uh, Don Lemon and uh, even Cuomo. Jake Tapper in the afternoon, to varying degrees, they do report facts, mm -hmm. but you cannot, they cannot separate themselves. I sympathize with them, but they cannot separate themselves personally. They cannot deliver it straight without it looking critical of the president. And I sympathize with that because they're human beings and he's a disgusting man who's president of the United States. But still, there's a middle lane where you're reporting these things and you're not letting your emotion. Look, I, yeah. when I was a reporter, I stopped being a reporter because I didn't want to keep telling two sides of the story. Just personally, when I agreed with one, so I went into politics and took one side. But if you're in the media, you constantly, constantly have to try to yes. be neutral as possible. And I think that a lot of these folks um, have have lost that. I mean, a lot of the print journalists so, have so, not, so I must we, say. Well, they do a great job. Here, there's, there's, there's a couple oh, things back, that need to be addressed. Go back to Jim, and then I want to get well, David. I've, I've, I've seen David. this as a, as a press secretary and as someone who used to work in broadcast journalism. The evolution of the news business in this country over the last several decades it's not about partisanship. It's about the commercialization of right. the news process. That's right. When I started out in the news business here in Chicago at Channel 2 as an intern, the news program that was produced by the, the, the Walter network Jacobson, stations, uh, right, uh, uh, Walter yeah. Jacobson, Bill, uh, Curtis. Bill Curtis, I mean, there was this sense that the news programming was something, it was, it was a public service. It was a public service, something of pride, and that it was, in a sense, in economic terms, a loss leader for the station. Right, a loss the, leader. The idea was that the news program was certainly expected to, to, uh, to you know, engage revenue, develop revenue, but it wasn't the primary revenue source. We have now evolved into an economic climate. It is the absolute application of capitalist principles to the coverage of daily they've news. Cut My news question teams, they've cut, cut news teams, teams everywhere, everywhere David. Let's, let's cut right. to the chase. Right. Is it making the country better or worse? I think it's making the country worse. I yeah. do. And I okay. think that it's a symbiotic relationship, by the way. It's not it's not just simply journalism is an integral part of our democracy. Yeah. And covering elected want, officials and keeping them responsible. I want to come back and find out why you say it's worse. There has to be some it's kind of, of objective standard. Uh, I, I didn't say I think it's better. I, I, I look, uh, unlike Congress. Well, it's either better or worse. No, I don't see, that's I don't look, I, I, not the middle course. You know what? The middle course is the The name of my company in podcasts, as you know, is the golden mean. That is the gray area that's in the middle. Not everything is black and white. That's what this president does. He reduces everything down to I'm going to eat pizza or I'm going to eat a hamburger. The media does a lot of great service, and not all media entities are the same. And by the same token, as David rightly pointed out the broadcasting they've cut positions they've cut budgets and it's just about making money you can't do a public service that way so, you just so, can't so number one we are a constitutional republic with democratic elections okay let's get that clear we are not a democracy okay constitutional republic democratic we are elections. a democratic no, that's num not, number, we number, are a form of democracy and then when we so talk, that's false we talk about the disgusting men were you, were you calling Bill Clinton President Bill Clinton a disgusting man I in 1990 yeah I'll answer your question as soon as that uh, affair happened with Monica you, Lewinsky before even impeachment. Do you impeachment. still call him that? Can I, can I finish my... Finish. I said he should, I said he should get out of office. Anybody who does that with a 19-year-old who's an intern in a public Absolutely. house like the White That's House. That's right. But, that is right. But that is right. if you don't and, think and not, that not this guy... Not only about the women, what about the race charges? If you don't think this guy should be impeached, then you think Clinton should be impeached, you're a hypocrite. Well, look, that... Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg.
and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Nice to have you uh, with us this evening. And I want to go back. I want to go to our Republicans because uh, earlier in the broadcast we talked about what the uh, what the president, the, the tweets involving uh, you know the squad, and uh, how that be has become a big story over the last couple of uh, days, uh, or several days. And I, 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 there was something that I was thinking about midweek. And uh, Cory Booker, who's running for president, uh, was on television today. And he basically said that the president's remarks reminded him of the George Wallace campaign. Now, David, you're, you're a fairly young man, but I think you might remember at least part of the George Wallace campaign. Yeah. And the George Wallace campaign was in 1968 when he ran. The bumper sticker was America, love it or leave it. Now, how does that differ from what the president is trying to articulate right now. Isn't this campaign somewhat, as Cory Booker suggests, 
somewhat reminiscent of the George Wallace campaign and appeal of 1968. Bruce, I suppose you could create some kind of ideological connections, but it was very different times, different contexts, but a somewhat similar theme, you might say. I think the question is, what is the intent behind those, those remarks? I mean, in the context of a national campaign at that time, what George Wallace was doing, we were in the throes of the civil rights movement having achieved some significant victories, and there was incredible social upheaval, and I think he was reflecting that in the same way that there's pushback against some of the changes that have occurred in America over the last uh, five to ten years on the social front. But, you know, I think that ideologically, if you're asking me, is there some connection between those two campaign themes, or if, if that's what they are, perhaps. Uh, but I think that we need to do some deeper dives into what is what is going on here. What what is what are they trying to achieve? Is is there some similarity uh, between these two uh, appeals to the voters, Jim? So I, here's the similarity. Look, we have billions of people in this world that would love to get here, and millions of them are coming, right? Because why? Do they, where are they coming here? Because we're the greatest country God God gifted on this earth. Right. We have individual liberty. We have a constitution that protects our individuality and our individual rights and treats everybody fair under that constitution if we're applying the rule of law it, right. and we're applying it equally, right? right. If and we're and supposed we, to, we right. know that there are things in our past that were bad, right? And we had, we had to correct those, but we had the tools in our Declaration of Independence and our constitution to fix it. And that's what it's all about. And that, so the love it or leave it's kind of like, you know, if you don't like what we have, go find it somewhere else. Is it in Venezuela? Look, I mean, look what's going on down there. I mean, Venezuela? They, they're, they're, running, they're running people out of the country. People are being hurt and abused by what's going on when you, when you apply that kind of government control, run the, run the companies, run the markets, run the capital. And everyone in the government gets but to do that, essence, but people but, can't but do that? But at the essence of, of what George Wallace was saying was um, this is a simple way for you to respond. This is a simple bumper sticker for you to respond to, to anyone who is saying things which they perceive to be against the United States. Yes. Okay? And number two is you had, because it was in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, you had African Americans then who were perceived by some as someone that's going to take their job. And that's why, the, 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 you know, whites used to be, uh, you know, the, they, they used to scare tactics with whites that a black was going to take their yeah, job. Yeah, but Bruce, let's, 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 let's not forget, too, right. that the love it or leave it was also directly related to the Vietnam War and protests yes. by people who objected to U.S. policy. It was a collective... Appeal. I mean, it, it, it was yeah. it was an umbrella under which a lot of people went to. It was simple. It was a bumper sticker. So whether it's that or go, you know, back to your country. I'm I'm just saying is is there a similarity there? Because you know you know the other thing which a lot of people don't remember, in the general election of 1968, George Wallace won the white male vote. It wasn't Richard Nixon. He won several states. He won. What, ten, he won like five. He, he won some states, but I'm just saying the, num the, the number one more white men voted for George Wallace in 1968 than Richard Nixon or Hubert Humphrey. So that appeal, which is, you know, 50 years ago, that appeal might still have some appeal today. Only the difference is 
it could be other people. Yeah. Other people who may be brown. Yeah, other people I, that I, I may don't know. Be... I'm not buying it. I was actually five years old in 1968. Okay. But I remember something about that election. There was little chance. And, and this is kind of tells you how politics integrates with social life. I was yeah. in grade school, and they had a little chant. Nixon, Nixon, he's our man. Wallace Humphrey in the garbage can. So that was the yeah, yeah, chant, okay, right? Okay, and I remember cute. that. I never See, heard that. And, <laughs> but it was on the playground. Yeah. I was five years old. Yeah. I don't know why I still remember it. But, you know... So, and Nixon was the guy that won, right? He was the guy that was against that, whatever Wallace was running on. And I right. had no idea that that was Wallace's slogan at the time. Well, he had a Southern strategy, too. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, was, that's, again, that's not black yeah. and white. It's I, not I, like Richard Nixon wasn't yeah. playing on those fears, yeah. too. I had that's a, what, I, I had a bumper sticker from that year, <laughs> not produced by the candidates, but it said, Archie Bunker, in your heart, you know he's right. I, I have you seen that one. Okay, let's look ahead to 2020. What, in your view, uh, I think I know the answer to this, Anthony, but what, in your view, is the one single issue that will rally more people to the Democratic Party to vote for a Democrat socialist who you hope will be Bernie Sanders? What is it? I think it's Medicare for All. I do think it's Medicare for All, and I believe it's also a Green New Deal. I think, you know, right now, millions of Americans are drowning in debt right now. Uh, they understand that the government has been working for the ultra-rich, for millionaires, for billionaires, for corporations for far too long. Uh, and right now, you know, people are struggling with student debt. They're struggling with, uh, you know, uh, medical bills. They're struggling working two and three jobs a day. Um, you know, they want economic justice, and people want Medicare for all. They want health care that is guaranteed. They want dental care. They want eye vision. They want to live life Who comfortably. Who will pay for it? The millionaires and billionaires and uh, the American people, but mainly we're going to about we're gonna, thirty we're gonna, days we're gonna, if you took we're gonna all of their this money. Bill. We're going to put this bill to Wall Street uh, to uh, millionaires and billionaires like uh, Bill Gates, uh, like Elon Musk, uh, like Warren Buffett, people, who, the Walton family, people. You know, the three richest people in the United States own more wealth than the bottom one hundred and fifty million Americans. So when we talk about who's going to pay for things, it's going to be Wall Street and it's going to be the billionaires. If Bernie Sanders is elected, yes. There's going to be a lot of people that believe exactly what you've said, that everything yeah. that Bernie Sanders wants to do, he's going to get done. Sure. There were a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. Yes. They're, they're seeing every single day that all the things, many of the things that Donald Trump wanted to do, mm -hmm. he couldn't do. Right. He had a Republican Congress. Right. He could he, he could he could get and, uh, you know immigration reform. So, so my I, question so to you is, not only, not only do you need Bernie Sanders to get right. elected, you need a majority of Congress to get elected. Yes. And you Super believe, majority in the Senate. And do you believe that will happen? I think it's it's a it's a matter of power, right? I think what we need to do it's is... It's a matter of attaining power. Yes, How do you do is, it? And I think we mobilize millions of Americans. We mobilize millions of working people to put pressure on their congressmen, on their senators. We're not going to win every single House seat. We're not going to win every single Senate seat. But what we are going to do is we're going to bring the working class and we're going to pressure legislators to say, we want Medicare for all. We're going to build... We're, we have a popular demand. We know we need people who need housing. We we need people who have education for free, and we know we need to fight climate change, and we're going to demand that. Okay. And we're going to do that by organizing. When we come back, I want to hear from Jim Martyr, who wants to be in that Congress. Yeah, that's right. Because he's going to be standing there with his uh, uh, back to the door, uh, fighting against this challenge. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. Thank you. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, 
we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. This was how, that's how this whole yeah. thing was designed. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, before we continue, uh, the... Uh, the debate schedule for uh, later this month on the 30th and 31st of July has been announced uh, by CNN. And on the first day, we're going to take a look at those that are going to be debating on Tuesday, uh, the 30th of July. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, uh, John Hickenlooper, Pete Buttigieg, Marion Williamson, uh, Williamson, and Steve Bullock. So it's going to be interesting. You're going to have uh, uh, Warren and Bernie Sanders you know, trying clawing at each other, and I think that you're also going to be looking at the way in which uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg uh, go after mm. each other, because Buttigieg appears to have a, a leg up in that battle between the two of them, and the rest are going to have to find some way to really break into that that uh, news cycle. Also, the very next day on Wednesday, the 31st, uh, Joe Biden will be there. He'll Camilla Harris. That'll be a rematch between those two. Uh, Julian Castro, who also had a very strong debate a couple of weeks ago, he will be in that uh, debate as well as Andrew Yang and Cory Booker, who's trying to hang on for dear life. Jay Inslee, the governor of uh, Washington. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, also trying to hang on for dear life. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard will be there, Michael Bennett, and uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. So again, uh, two more uh, battles coming up. David? Can I say one quick thing sure. about that? It, and, you know, and it is important which candidates are going to appear on stage together sure. who's yeah. going to debate whom. But I have to say, this is another example of that infotainment the disease. Draw. Yeah. The, the, the draw? The thing the, I've the ever seen. Se <laughs> the segment that CNN did on this. It an was hour? Sort of, you mean it, an it hour was like program. this NFL yeah. draft hour style. Program. Yeah. It was absolutely ludicrous. And that's the kind of thing that, to me, undermines. I mean, that's not journalism. That I mean, for goodness sake, they could have done the draw and then announced the results. And, and, you know, they, it's a they digital wanted, story. It's, it's a little, they had to go out of their way to show right. how transparent they okay. were. It was just silly. So I can we go, get some I wanna, substance here? <laughs> I, 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 want, I want to go back to Jim because uh, Jim... Uh, 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 Anthony was describing what he thought uh, how life could be much better uh, if Bernie Sanders wins yes. and he gets a majority, yes. somehow gets a majority in Congress. Uh, if you are successful and you go and, and take the oath uh, next January, uh, you right. will be standing in the way of those things. So uh, uh, as, as a newbie, uh, again, let's just look ahead. As, as a freshman in Congress, um, uh, what is going to be the prime issue that you want voters in the 14th district to know about? So, so here's the deal, and let, let's tee it off with the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. So I studied economics at Purdue University, and I only remember one phrase from, from my uh, bachelor's degree down there, and it was from this class. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So we have free Medicare for All. We have free health care. We have free dental. I mean, we don't even get that today, right? You gotta, you gotta work for it. You gotta pay for it. What you know? What working people want is they want the policies that they have that they were promised they're going to keep those policies and not lose their doctor and not lose their insurance. When I when I started, I worked for the corporate world and then I went to, uh, into business on my own, bought private insurance in the formerly free uh, private insurance market. There's a big difference between healthcare and insurance, by the way. Uh, Six thousand dollars, family of four, uh, for four kids, family of six in 2002. Fast forward to 2010, 
Now we're about 8,000 right before the passage of Obamacare. Today, for my wife and myself and one adult child, we're paying 30 grand a year. That is not affordable. 30 million people were affected. Oh, by the way, it didn't just hit us in the private insurance market in the small business world. It hit every working person. Because guess what? Ask anyone this. I ask them this all the time, and they all say, oh, yeah. Did your co-pays go up? Did your deductibles go up? Did your, did your out-of-pocket that you had to pay to your employer to cover your insurance go up? Yes, you all got whacked. The, the Unaffordable Care Act, that's what we got. And you want to give it over to the guys that gave us the Unaffordable Care Act, no Republican voted for it, and you want to turn Medicare for all, which they stole from Medicare, by the way, to fund Obamacare. So how are we going to do that, folks? Where's the money going to come from? You know, it doesn't grow on trees. And what happens, like, like they do in Illinois, J.B. and Madigan, guess what? They tax the working folks. They give you cigarette tax. They give you bag taxes. They give double your gas tax. They put 500% increase on some of the vehicle fees, like, Anthony, like trailers but and stuff. Right? Anthony, Anthony says, and the, and the left would say, the way you get the money is you tax the rich more. Right. Look, look you can tax, you can tax the rich, and in 30 days, there would be no more rich. If you tax them 100%, we're all gone. You can't do it. Great. It doesn't work. And guess what? They would be all need you know what? The other thing I learned in economics: corporations don't pay taxes; people do. If, you pay them, you pay them. I pay them, he pays. If we had a fair tax system, if we had a fair tax system, if the rich were paying their fair share, there wouldn't be the amount of billionaires that there are today. If working, if working people were not enslaved in paying taxes over and over, the amount again, of billionaires are enslaved because we have a free market. Given, That's if how tax it works. Breaks weren't folks. given out like free candy on Halloween. To the, to the rich and to the billionaires and the millionaires, we wouldn't be living in the system. You wouldn't have to be paying $13,000 or $30,000 for your health care insurance. No, that Ooh. is a tax. Sorry, right. so, that was the ahead. largest tax increase in American history, folks. When you did Obamacare, look at the look at the numbers they had to get right. to get there. That's, I, that's what it is. I'm it not, turned I'm into taxes on medical devices, direct Anthony, my question, my, my, my question <laughs> to you is, if you did away with the, with the millionaires, you just said get rid of the millionaires, get rid of the billionaires. Mm -hmm. if, if they wave a magic wand, they're all gone. Who invests in corporations that make things, that hire people? Where, where does that piece of the economic system come from? If you don't have people that are willing to invest money to improve not only their own portfolio, mm -hmm. but to improve the country. Where does it come no, from? I, I think if everybody is, was making $85,000 a year, where would it come from? That's not the argument. The argument, is about you tell me? the argument is about democratizing our economy. Right now, we have an economy that is in the hands of the very few, right? It's in the hands of corporate boards, in the hand of, hands of Wall Street. What I'm saying is we need more control. Workers need more control of our economy. We need fast unionization so, efforts. So who's we, in charge of your paycheck? I, I just yeah. want to know that. If, if you're not in charge of your paycheck and what money you get to spend. Who is? Well, that's, and, that's the free market. When, that's when, when we have, here when today, we have right? a collective and cooperative economy that is based off of the mutual benefit of all people. Tell me one country a, where that's worked in, in human history. Well, I'd like to know the what, example. What, Which that's country what this is, is building. That's well, what this we're going to do building. it here, but it's never been done anywhere well, else before. Socialism, fascism, communism has been tried. No, there, and there everywhere have been, it happens, tyranny, tyranny happens, dictators rise. And people, people basically, yeah, that's, and that's yes. horrible. 
and now and, and horrible. And, and, and there have We're been about hundreds of millions there have of people. Been instances, that, there have been instances time in human history where people have come together and they have collectively taken control of the And you can do that in a economy. free market capitalistic society. And no, you're you welcome to do that no, with you your can't. friends and, and no, your, you your can't. community. No, you can't when you're working you three yes, jobs a day. No, you can't when you're living in poverty. You have no options to do that. You have to work to live. Maybe that's something you don't understand, but that's something that I understand. Well, look, and well, I don't well, have no freedom well, in this economy, well, well, and nor does my community. So that's what we're fighting for. One at a time, Jim. Look. I've been working to live since I was 16. So I, I've been in the working world my entire life, and you know I'm happy to work. And so are people out there. They're happy right. to work. They want to work. And there, there are work. homeless people. And there are people without homes right now who are working, and they don't have the luxury of buying into the economy look, or of, of controlling no, the economy. Nobody's arguing is, we should be taking care of folks that need some help and a lift up. But you don't do that by tearing down the people that are Michael, their wealthy. Michael so Golden, how do you, I want you to, Michael, I want you to weigh taxes. in on this debate. Well, you wouldn't like my answer because it's sort of in the middle. It's go ahead. Of, there yeah. you go. You can, Michael, yeah. you can be in the middle. Uh, can I ask Jim a question, though? Related? Of course you can. Yep. Jim, because you were running for Congress. So. I have a question. The, all the Republicans, every single one of them who opposed uh, the president, President Obama in 2009, doing a, a stimulus when People forget the world and the country were on the brink of collapse. I don't understand why they're all against that, but that the tax cut that cost even more under Trump. What we, David was talking about intellectual honesty. Can't we acknowledge that th actually we spent more on a tax cut than Obama spent to try to jumpstart and avoid a depression? Why is that tax cut well, okay? I'm I don't get. I'm confused how a tax cut, which comes out of my wallet is spending what? okay i'm confused of course how spending. Tax, it's no, money no, look, out of the budget the, the, it's money the out of the federal the budget jim no we're the we, country's going one at a time right, money right. out of the budget right. let's let's establish well, let's our take terms some there. things out of the budget then, spending right? taxes so, are, we're turning tax, 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 tax is what comes out of everyone's wallet right here in this room right that country that is not and the country spends it either on programs or defense so when obama had a stimulus where were those shovel ready jobs because they didn't spend it on building things that's not the question that's not the question. But that was the example you used. I said... What do we spend it on? Are you kidding? Does anyone First even know? of all, there were tax cuts in that package. There were a ton of tax cuts that never in, for middle-class families in the Obama stimulus. Well, Go I'm check a, it. I'm a middle-class family. I didn't see any Well, tax I don't know what, I don't know what income bracket you are, but, there's, but that's a fact. We're yes. not, you can laugh about it. We're, yeah. we're talking about facts. That's a fact. And, and, and there was a ton of investment in infrastructure and all kinds of things. But even if it was for nothing, even if it was all tax cuts, let's say was all tax cuts. Why is that not okay? But Trump and the Republicans, when they have power, that okay? So, Why? so I want to know what people do well, with the tax cut. Let, let's so, let's so, let so, let intellectual so, so you know what happens when you get a tax cut? You have more That's money not to my spend question. in the economy. It's not my that question. Generates jobs. It's not That's my not question. What would you, Michael? Yes, would you let the man speak? Yeah. It's being very yeah. rude. Let the man speak. Yeah. So you've had I, your diatribe. Right, let him speak. Look, tax cuts. Are for us. That's you know the government is taking about 39 percent in the top bracket, right? And we're or 35 percent. But look at it. When we originally instituted that back in 1916, Jim, I'm not I believe making it was. the argument against look, tax they cuts. Said the I'm the saying why is it okay for Trump right? and not Obama? 
Why is it okay for Trump and not Obama to spend it out of the federal treasury? And now we have near a trillion dollar deficit just I, hey, since look, Trump took over. Look, why I, is that okay? I, I would love why to get okay? there and then start cutting spending. If that's what you're advocating for, I'm 100. Why is with it okay you. for Trump send to me spend? There so we can. I'm we talking can about cut Trump spending. spending. David, yeah, I want to get you in. David, question, like, I, I think we can have a, a rational conversation about how to address the health care needs in this country, which are significant, or how to address the issue of, in, of income inequality and other pressing issues. But we're never going to be able to do that if we're going to continue to vilify people with whom we disagree and to, and to use inflammatory rhetoric like people being enslaved. Um, the other thing is, I have to flat out disagree with you about, uh, you know, one of the, one of the great features of this country is the fact that the the economic system we have allows people to create great wealth out of very meager beginnings and we've seen so many examples of we that. We got a break. And to, to vilify people who have been gotta successful, break. I think is is denigrating one of the great genius Back aspects of our of our nation. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. As you uh, know, if you're a longtime listener to this program, we have been uh, very involved in watching uh, the, the, the development of the First Step Act. And we've been talking about it for a number of years. This is part of the criminal justice reform that is sweeping both Republicans and Democrats. It's one of the few things that has happened in Washington, D.C., and uh, it, 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 it brings together uh, those who are liberal, left of center, and those that are right of center, not only uh, the Koch brothers, but the ACLU and a lot of other groups. And so uh, it was unique uh, when it was uh, passed recently uh, and signed by the President of the United States, uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, his uh, son-in-law has been the, basically the, the chief quarterback for that project. And uh, we've done a lot of conversations about it. And last week, as, as part of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the rollout of this First Step Act, uh, is, was the announcement by the Bureau of Prisons that 3,100 federal prisoners will soon be released. And they're going back into the population. And again, uh, their sentences have been reduced. And uh, joining us now to sort of bring us up to date on uh, what's happening is uh, John Kufus. Uh, John is the National Director for Reentry Public Policy at the Texas Public Policy Institute. He joins us from Washington, D.C. And, uh, John, thank you for joining us on Beyond the Beltway tonight. Thanks for having me. Good evening. Good. I'd like to begin, first of all, by determining, we should mention to the audience, that when we talk about this prison reform and the First Step Act, it is for federal prisoners. It has nothing to do uh, with state uh, penal policy, uh, or policy, rather. Uh, but of the 31 people that will soon be, 3,100 people that will soon be released, how are those people being determined? 
Uh, so the 3100 that are that have just come out uh, are because of a good time recalculation provision within the First Step Act. Now, prior to that, about 1,000 or 1,200 folks were released under uh, the sections of the First Step Act that corrected things like the crack cocaine disparity, compassionate release, etc. So the folks you're seeing now are folks who uh, earned this good behavior time for many, many years of their sentence, but due to an anomaly in the BOP's calculation method, just weren't let out. So those retroactive recalculations are being done, and they're going to come out to the community. Now, it's, it's important to know that the estimates are about 1,000, 900 to 1,000 of those uh, individuals are going to be released to uh, other detainers, say, mostly ICE detainers, and, uh, and if another state wants that person. So not all 3,100 will hit the street because some may be here illegally. And those that are being, uh, that are illegal, uh, they will be released to ICE, and, and ICE, we will assume, will uh, deport them? Well, what happens is uh, an ICE detainer goes in right away when a person who's undocumented enters a federal prison system, which means uh, if you have a detainer from any jurisdiction, you can't leave unless that jurisdiction agrees to get you uh, or resolves a detainer. Mm. ICE detainers trump all other detainers and are automatic. So a person uh, cannot go anywhere except uh, into ICE custody if, the, if ICE has a detainer on them. And then ICE, the ICE process then plays out. Now, at, at, at the basis of, of this uh, uh, issue, uh, which the president has articulated, is that he wants to make sure that people that are getting out of prison are trained and have a, an opportunity to get a job to become productive citizens. And, and in the past, certainly at the state level, the number of the recidivist rate, which is the rate of people that go back into prisons, is very, very high. It is significantly less in the federal system. But what is being done since this act has been uh, signed? It's only a few months old. What has been done uh, in, the, in the Bureau of Prisons to make those that are going to be released more likely to be employable by someone? Sure. Well, the, the VOP took the step of starting something called the Ready to Work Initiative uh, as a direct response to the First Step Act. What the Ready to Work Initiative does is it provides uh, employers an opportunity to plug right into the prison labor pool, which really comes in uh, uh, pre-release prison labor pool. So an employer can now, through this great initiative, call the BOP and say, you know, we're going to need some heavy machinery operators. Who do you have coming back to the District of New Jersey that has these qualifications? And contacts can be made right away. So that's, the, that's today's issue. Um, and then what happens is the BOP is expanding their vocational programming, expanding their educational programming to match in-demand jobs in regions. So you're seeing a great expansion of job training inside the BOP. But the Ready to Work initiative has got uh, people really excited, particularly because uh, big organizations that I have the pleasure of working uh, uh, alongside, like the Society for Human Resources Management, which has about 300 constituents uh, who are HR officers across the country are partnering with the BOP and the United States Probation Officer to put these office to put these people back to work. So it's is, a tremendous public-private partnership. Is there a financial uh, incentive for the owner of a business in the United States to become part of this program? So I don't think there's direct incentives. Uh, in other words, there's no dollar amount right. uh, that I know being offered to employers for this. 
But I think that, you know, people are starting to see that uh, when you hire the right person who's been in prison, the right returning citizen, you're going to get you're going to get someone who has this might be their first opportunity ever. And those are pretty much your most loyal employees. I mean, you're talking about folks that never, ever uh, may have held a nine to five job, never had a chance. So I think that when you when you partner governmental training with the private sector, you have a real recipe for good results. Uh since you obviously, or the BOP knows who is going to be released, uh, has a list been created, the number of states that are most likely to get the first wave of these uh, 3,100 uh, uh, individuals? Yeah, there are release numbers. Um, I haven't seen them, but they're probably going to, the, they're going to track standard release numbers. So, for example, um, and, and one thing your, your, your listeners should know is that unlike some state systems like Florida, when you go to prison uh, and you max out, they just open the door and say, we'll see you later. In the federal system, every inmate is released to supervised release, usually of three or five years. So everyone's being released to, to supervision uh, and must comply or go back to prison. Um, so when you're talking about and that's a parole officer? where uh, inmates are being released to in higher numbers each month, you're talking usually about your Floridas, your Texas, uh, North Carolina, Missouri, uh, California, obviously, is where typically these releases are going. But again, in, in this, as you say, there's like a parole officer they've got to report to and they've got to they have a very they have a very restrictive uh, list of things that how they must conduct themselves. Correct. That's right. That's right. And that's and to be honest, there's been great research from uh, from Pew, for example, has the famous study on how recidivism rates are better where there is post-release supervision than where there than where there is not. Now, so this is really an enough? exciting time. And this dovetails with another part of the First Step Act yeah. where you're going to see going forward is that uh, inmates that participate in uh, drug treatment, vocational training, they're going to be able to be released to home confinement earlier in their sentence. John, as someone that's followed this for, for quite some time, and we should mention you were incarcerated for a while, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But again, you've been following, you've been working on this, uh, this issue for, for several years now. You had a similar position in the state of New Jersey, and now you're working with the Texas <laughs> Policy Institute directing uh, their national reentry program. Uh, what are the, what, what would you say to an employer, and, and if there is an employer listening you know, to the program this evening in the, in the great state of Wisconsin, uh, how would they go about finding uh, uh, jobs that might be available or individuals that might fit criteria that they have uh, so they can uh, uh, tie themselves into this program? Sure. I think uh, the easiest way to do it uh, is to contact the uh, United States Probation Office in uh, the district where they are. So uh, in New Jersey, for example, it's a, there's only one district, and it's in Newark. Um, and uh, so if you contact the USPO and you were to say, I'm an employer and I have X amount of positions requiring Y qualifications, uh, can we see who you have? They'll immediately set those up. In addition, the Bureau of Prisons Ready to Work Initiative is something that employers, because uh, it's brand new, are starting to tap into. I had the pleasure of bringing uh, a few businesses uh, right to the Ready to Work initiative, and so far they're very happy with the, with the process, and they're vetting candidates right now. For those who uh, maybe are still uh, <laughs> suspicious of this program, what would you say to uh, the voter or to the employer that's out there uh, that, that asks themselves, why should I hire an ex-offender to do a job 
when maybe there is someone knocking on my door or in my office who wants the job who has never committed a crime? Well, first and foremost, I think that uh, any business should always hire the best candidate, whoever that is, right? So you're going to have a straight skill situation there. I don't think anyone's asking businesses to uh, hire just for the sake of hiring. Um, but going forward, you know, I think that we have to reframe this issue. You know, and remember that we're all consumers of the criminal justice system, right? Some people went to prison. Some people, uh, or most people pay taxes. Some people are victims of crimes. And the idea is when we start realizing that we're all consumers of that system, we all have an interest in the solution. And smart justice interventions lead to safer streets. They lead to tax bases that were previously tax drains. And I think that effective reentry protects tomorrow's victims with today's intervention. So there's a number of reasons to do it, but a business should never hire someone who's unqualified merely because uh, they went to prison or for any other factor for that matter. Is your biggest fear that someone who is released is going to commit a crime and it's going to end up on the front page of a newspaper or leading a story on CNN? No, no. My biggest fear is, uh, is that employers don't tap into the programs uh, that are historical right now. This was generational change. But to your point, uh, you know, those Willie Horton situations, uh, you know, they're, they're by far the outlier. Uh, in, in situations. And listen, I mean, n there is no perfect system on this planet in anything. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you can find people who have no criminal record and commit horrible crimes. I don't necessarily think that committing, uh, that a person who's committed a crime is automatically going to be uh, more likely to, to uh, rob your place than someone who is not. In fact, you know, particularly if someone's in treatment. Candidly, I'd rather have the person in treatment. John, hang on uh, one second. We've got to pause, and then we'll be back to you on Bruce Dumont. Okay. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online, so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago, and John Kufus joins us uh, from Washington, D.C. He's the National Director for a Reentry. Uh, at the Texas Public Policy Institute, and uh, one of your colleagues, Mark Levin, has been a frequent guest on this program during the last several years as this has made its way through Congress. And we're doing kind of a progress report uh, since uh, we urged a lot of people to support this and tell their Congress and, and members, uh, members of Congress to support this concept. We now want to find out, since it's law, how is it being implemented? And David Cohn is here. He's with the uh, Union League Club of Chicago. He has a question for you, John. And uh, John, uh, thanks. Great for uh, thank you for being part of the conversation tonight. I was fascinated by what you had to say. And 
where I work, we've been involved in working on criminal justice reform and juvenile justice reform issues for a number of years. And the First Step Act, it, it's interesting that this we've been talking throughout this program about political conflict and ideological conflict. Criminal justice reforms like this are one of the few areas where we've seen Republicans and Democrats come together with common purpose to solve a problem. Uh, here in Illinois, we've been working on some of these issues. We've had some successes. Uh, but one of the interesting things that we learned during this work is that Texas really has provided a model in many cases for the nation of how to do this. And I was wondering if you could address the ways that Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals in, in, in Texas uh, came together to try and work out these uh, kinds of innovative programs to address infirmities in the criminal justice system. Sure, sure. And this goes back to about, I think, 2005. Uh, I joined the Texas Public Policy Foundation in 2017. Uh, but the Texas miracle uh, is well, well known. So uh, the, the government, you know, guys like Jerry Madden, and the, uh, when they were in the legislature, started to respond to the fact that the prison system in Texas was costing, you know, billions of dollars, uh, and there was no rate on rate of return. So it began with a combination of sentencing reform and diversion programs, and uh, that sentencing reform took hold. And you know, where we sit today, Texas has closed eight prisons. And uh, I think they saved $3 billion, and the crime rate's the lowest it's been since the 60s. So the Texas model works because there's a, there's a heavy sentencing reform component in there. And I think the nation is realizing as well is that there, is, there has to be a better way here, right? And I think, that, I think the opioid epidemic really opened people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And what I was saying before the break was that I would rather have a former prisoner who is in treatment that uh, working for me than a person who has committed no crimes but is uh, an opioid addict or some other addict uh, unchecked and then is out on your job sites and falling off of scaffoldings and handling your equipment. So I think that, that when you put these factors together, we're starting to realize that this is not a, a left or right issue. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's about doing what's right. Right. It also brings together uh, d different, uh, different political leaders and different persuasions have different things that really uh, move them. And, and, and uh, in this particular case, I think the common denominator is common sense. This is, right. this is a perfect common sense issue. And again, it, it really should be supported. This, this is a great bipartisan uh, thing that's been going on in this country. And again, it should be celebrated more because as we've discussed in the first part of our program, we, there's so much gnashing of teeth and, and hatred that we hear coming out of Washington, D.C. This, this, this had an, 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 an amazing signing ceremony with people that you'd never see probably in the same room, and yet you had liberals that were there. They were concerned about disparity of sentencing and, and issues that are of concern to, uh, to, to the black and brown communities of America, and you had, uh, you had many conservatives there that were looking at the, they were just saying, this is a bad deal. And, and what I've been saying on this program for, for many years now is that if you thought that the welfare system in this country was horrible, which ultimately drew both sides together to do something about it, the criminal justice system is equally as bad. And so you've got to look for these common sense things. And again, this is one example of that. That's why, you know, I'm very concerned about, uh, by the way, uh, Jim's got a question, but I want to ask one follow-up. Do you see anything? Obviously, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of points along the way because this program has many different uh, you know points to it. Do you see anything in the future or that's on the horizon, uh, John, that you might think will be a blip and and uh, 
and, and slow this process down in any way? I think the, the thing we, uh, we need is, uh, is, is, a, is a sworn BOP director. In other words, right now, uh, Acting Director Hugh Hurwitz uh, does a great job, has been uh, with the Bureau of Prisons for decades and uh, is a real leader in the field. But right now he's the Acting Director of the Bureau yeah. of Prisons. So I think when you're trying to implement something uh, on such a large scale as the First Step Act, uh, we're hoping that the Attorney General names an act, uh, a permanent director, whether it's Acting Director Hurwitz or someone else. We just need someone has to be in that seat right. who's going to be there and not in an acting capacity so they can fully implement the First Step Act and other reform. Several months ago, the concern from um, those within the coalition was whether or not Congress was really going to step up with appropriations. Now, I understand that uh, what the Attorney General said last week is that $75 million has been set aside at least for the first year. Uh, is that a sufficient amount of money in your view? I mean, I, I think that uh, as we're getting the plane to cruising altitude, um, I, I haven't run the calculations, but I think $75 million is a great, uh, is a great start. And I think that uh, we have to see how the uh, programming takes shape with the, with the risk assessment that has been released. Mm -hmm. uh, just the other day, the DOJ released the scientific risk assessment they're going to be using. So we have to examine what, what programs plug into that properly. Uh, we are out of Jim. You had a quick. You had a quick question. We got. We got. We got thirty seconds. Yeah, for a well, question. it was real. It was going to be a comment first, but uh, you know, I, I like the assessment tracking part. Um, I was curious if Texas had incentives, and I, I share your concern that if there were no incentives in that program, that you know. Is it going to be effective in, in getting these folks integrated right, okay. back into society? That's a good point, so. and uh, uh, that's a gentleman who wants to go to Congress, so you may have a friend uh, if he gets there and you keep on, on the job. John Kufus, thank you very much. Uh, Texas Public Policy Institute for bringing us up to date on the First Step Act. Our thanks to Michael Golden and Anthony Joel Quesada and Jim Martyr and also David Cohen for joining us this evening. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. <laughs> All right, Anthony. I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online, so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. 
If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org.